Some of you know that I just turned 80 years of age a few days ago, uh, so I'm still clicking along, as you see, and uh, staggering, staggering happily through life <laughs> with my stroke. But uh, at any rate, I'm glad to be here and very thankful uh, that God has given me already 10 more years beyond what King David lived, you know, uh, 3,000 years ago. So he died old and full of days at age 70, but God is giving more of us extra life with our great variety of foods that we have today. And David did live kind of a hard life. You look at all the time he had to hide out from Saul you know, for 10 years living in caves and fighting and, and struggling and in danger. So he probably had a lot of stress or he might have lived longer, of course, back at that time. Anyway, we're grateful for what God gives us. And thinking about the sermon I thought the most important thing I could give all of you today, and I didn't know we'd have any visitors, but that's fine. It really is the most important thing going on in the universe. That sounds like I'm hyping my sermon, but by the time you get through, I think you'll understand what I mean. Some of you already know what I'm going to talk about. But it is the biggest single thing going on in the universe, and we do need to review it from time to time and really understand it grasp it, think about it, meditate on it, and be inspired by it. We've had a lot of excellent unity and love in the living church of God, brethren. I'd like to say that as we start off, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And I thank God for the fine ministers and elders and deacons and leaders that we have here and all over the world, because we're very, very grateful for the unity that we have. God wants us to build a family together in the church God Himself is building a family. And we really have to think about it that way. God is a family. As Mr. Armstrong said, nearly every great nation started out as one man. Our nation started out as one man called Jacob, whose name was Israel, and then later coming on to Jacob's grandson Manasseh. And, uh, of course, that was our immediate father, and Ephraim became the immediate father of the British uh, peoples and the British Commonwealth peoples such as Australia, New Zealand, and so on. But a family often starts out that way, and God, that's what God is doing, and He wants all of us to realize that we are being made into a family. The first and great... Com we want to love one another because we're going to have to get along with each other forever. People say, oh, no, <laughs> well, we'd better learn that. We're going to have to get along with and learn to love each other forever. But the first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart and strength and soul and might. Because you cannot love your neighbor as you should unless you know God and fear God, have that awe of God, and have His help in loving your neighbor. And through God and His revelation come to recognize that your neighbor, that is every human being made in God's image, is in fact made in God's image, and may be your brother forever and ever and ever. Even the bad guys out there will probably, in most cases, be given an opportunity, a genuine opportunity for salvation in the great white throne judgment, you know, that they've never had before. And they might be your brother later on. So we have to think about it that way. So we've got to learn to God, love God first with all of our heart because He has put us here to become full sons of God. That's why we're alive. That's why we were born. As I've said, when I grew up over in Missouri here in the hills of the Ozarks and used to wander over the hills and fly kites and sometimes I'd sit on top of a chat pile flying my kite and I did a lot of meditation. They didn't have television there 
and they didn't have any internet, you had more time to think. And I would think once in a while, why am I here? Why was I born? And as I've said, when one of my best friends, Jimmy Mallett, got his neck broken, I thought, why did God let Jimmy die? I really wanted to understand that profoundly. And that became a turning point in my life when I began to seek for that and to want to understand it. And, of course, I began to hear a man coming over the radio, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, who on the radio made a lot of things plain. But even after I graduated from Ambassador College, he still didn't fully understand that one thing. And I won't go through that story, but even after graduation, as I've told you, he came to understand that during a graduate school session on prophecy. But every now and then, as was his wont, he would get into whatever was on his mind, as Mr. Apartian knows, and he began to say, fellas, he said, something is coming to me, and it sounds blasphemous, it sounds heretical, and I don't want to be heretical, I want to teach what the Bible really says. But then he began to say what we come to have come to understand is the ultimate purpose of human existence, which I'm going in today, because I think we really do need to understand that, be able individually, all of you are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to talk about it to others, your friends, your relatives, your children, grandchildren, as they become interested and are willing to listen and help us get this message to the whole world. So God is building a family. We are made to be His full sons. Without this knowledge we can very easily get distracted. We can very easily get hurt. We can get disoriented. We can get discouraged because we do have trials and tests. Uh, Mr. Stroud, in his fine sermonette, talked about his own brother being killed and what a discouraging thing that can be to have your own relative killed. I know Mr. Hull down in South Africa talked about his own sister being killed and different ones have had those things happen to them by gangs of thugs in many cases. It is a terrible thing. So without this knowledge, we could easily get sidetracked, we could get bitter, we could get upset, we can get discouraged. But when you think about the reward that we're being prepared for, it is absolutely awesome. And I don't need to use a lot of superlatives because there is nothing else like it, and most of you realize that. Yet, as we head toward that reward, we are surrounded by trials and tests. And as this age comes to a close... As I've explained many times, and I do want you to understand it, our trials and tests will get worse. Satan will attack us. He will try to discourage us. He will try to divide us. He will got to get us bitter against one another, bitter, bitter against God, God's way, or get us just to be lukewarm and wander off and water things down so we just drift away. Whatever he can do, he will get us distracted if he can, and we've got to realize that. And realize the reward that's just ahead and how wonderful it is, how truly magnificent it is, and keep our minds on that. Turn with me, if you would, back to First Peter. Turn with me in your New Testament here to First Peter, brethren. And this is chapter 1 and verse 5. He's speaking of God who's reserved an inheritance in heaven for us. He's going to bring it to this earth, of course. God through this God, you who are kept by power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That salvation is reserved in heaven now. The job, the responsibility in God's coming government is being prepared by Christ and by God in heaven. And all the rest of the Bible shows they're going to bring it back to this earth. First Peter 1, verse 5. In this, in this wonderful reward, you greatly rejoice... 
Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved or distressed, as the margin says, by various trials. For those of you who are new, by the way, I'm reading out of the, of the new King James Version. That's the version Mr. Armstrong approved uh, several years before he died. That was the standard version of the Worldwide Church of God under Herbert Armstrong. And we have kept that in our church, and I think many of the churches have done that because it is the, probably the most accurate version in the English language. So we've been grieved by various trials. A lot of you have had horrible trials, and you will have more to come. Why? That the genuineness of your faith. Are you a Saturday Christian? Do you want to just be good on the Sabbath and go to church and that's it for the week? Or are you giving your life to God all week long or whatever? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, God will test you and test you and test you, and He is testing and testing me as He's done over and over and over, and I haven't passed all the tests yet. If God thinks I'm through, He might let me go to sleep. Maybe one reason I'm here and men who may have been more righteous and dedicated than me are not here is because of maybe I needed to have more training. I needed to go through more tests. And all of us are here in order to learn and to keep growing and to keep being tested. That the testing of your faith by fire, fiery trials, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation, the revealing, when Christ comes back, whom having not seen you love. And I hope all of us do do that. If we really read this book and we understand the personality in this book and we read other books, and I've read parts of the Bhagavad Gita and I've read part of the Koran and part of the Book of Mormon and all these other, many other religious texts. I even took a course on comparative religion at Pasadena City College way back when. And I have read a lot of that stuff. No other book remotely reads like this book does. But I can't prove that to you unless you begin to just drink into the Bible and you see the mind of God in the book. And as Dr. Monell pointed out in his booklet, only the Bible gives specific prophecies. The Book of Mormon doesn't do that. You know, the Koran doesn't do that. The people following Muhammad, they don't know what's going to happen and how and why. Only the Bible does that. The God of the Bible tells specific things that were going to happen to major nations, and they have happened and they will happen. But we have to understand that. So we love Christ, even though we have not seen Him, who though you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace. And remember, brethren, grace means gift. It's one of those things. It can be mercy, but it can also mean gift uh, that would come to you searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They began to wonder, even way back 3,000, 5,000 years ago, what is the purpose of life? And God began to reveal that to certain men and women he called out ahead of time. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which have now been reported uh, through those uh, who are guided by God's Spirit. Things which the angels desire to look into. 
Brethren, even the angels, the angelic hosts, see we, on some of us, on our knees. And they say these people are on their knees because they are serving the great God. Even the demons see that and partly recognize it. They probably smirk and sneer. They don't appreciate it. But God's true angels see it. And they say here are some of God's little children. And we're watching over them. Many times since my stroke, I felt I was about to fall down. And a couple times at the stop of the tears, I would slip. And somehow I didn't. And I can't prove it to you. And I'm not trying to prove it to you. I could not do that. But I don't go around having dreams and visions and stuff. I just, in my own mind, I'm pretty sure there was something there that kept me from falling. (laughs) You know what I mean? And there are angels all around us. And God does do that. Because they're watching us. And they are servants of ours right now. So they are seeing these things. Even the angels desire to look into this tremendous purpose. The great God of heaven and earth is recreating himself. And he's making these little puny human beings down on this earth in his very image and preparing them to be full members, full members of the family of God within a few years. And I don't think we can fully understand that. I know we can. I don't fully understand it. But we can begin to understand it if we think and meditate and pray about it. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest for your hope fully upon the grace, this gift that's to be brought to you at the revelation of the coming of Christ. Be as obedient children. God tells us to be obedient. Don't just love the Lord. Be obedient. Not conforming yourselves to your former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, as God himself is holy, be you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Why does God want you and me to be holy? Is he just a nicey-nice old man that wants us to be goody-good? God created a lot of things that often people, misguided human beings, think are bad. He created wine. He tells us to enjoy a glass of wine if we want to. We're not supposed to get drunk. He created sex. He created in detail all the sexual organs and the psychological responses and why the feminine body would be attractive to a young man. That's not evil. Most of us men have figured that out. I I figured that out about 70 years ago. (laughs) I don't think about it so much anymore as I've gotten older. But you don't have to have a, a great scientific mind to figure that out. God made that as a beautiful thing to draw a man and woman together to have a family, because he is producing a family, and to have children. And if that is used in a right way, that's a very good thing that God has done, a very wonderful thing, because he is creating holy spirit beings in a family. He tells us to be holy, for I am holy. We're to be like God in every way, because he himself is making us like he is. And if you call on the Father, He's the Father of the whole universe in that sense, being the creator of the angels and everything that is, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. You can say, just love the Lord, but no, you've got to work. You've got to overcome. You've got to obey God. He will judge you according to your deeds. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear or in righteous awe, which is, of course, what that word fear means, the deep awe, the profound respect that you have for God because you see why he's put you here. He is a real God, and he has a magnificent purpose that he's working out. 
Back in Genesis chapter 1, remember how at the very beginning we see a great being, in fact, two beings in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So in the beginning was Elohim, and that, of course, word means a a plural word. It can mean a family, more than one, more than one. So God then began to create the heaven the days uh, days and the nights and separate them and he made the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and in verse 23 so the evening and the morning were the fifth day then verse 24 god said let the earth bring forth the living creature according to his kind and as you read the previous verses everything was created according to its kind there was a kind cattle creeping things beasts of the earth each according to its kind That's the way God did. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, according to uh, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and saw that it was good. Then, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And if you're reading right through the whole context, God is saying, in effect, I'm going to make man according to my kind. God now creates man according to his kind. In his likeness, let them have dominion. And so man is given limited dominion or government, power, authority over things all over this earth. Here we have these powerful lions, and I know most of you are not afraid of lions because you've not been around a real lion up close in the jungle, and and I haven't either for that matter. But at any rate, uh, I've seen some of the movies that were pretty realistic. Uh, The the Night in the Darkness or some of them, I forget what it was called, very, very real What these two... Remember, uh, we're out hunting this, these man-eating lions, and it was really based on a true story. And later, my wife and I went to the uh, Natural History Museum in Chicago, and there are those very lions. They caught those lions. They worked as a pair, and they would just kill worker after worker after worker. They were very clever, and it was pretty gruesome seeing how they did it in the movie and uh, so on. But basically, lions don't hunt us. We hunt lions. Lions don't, don't put us in cages and get a big uh, derrick and hoist us over on a ship and take us over 3,000 or 6,000 miles to another place and put us in a zoo, do they? We do that to them. We do that to the great powerful elephants and all the other creatures because we are made like God. We're made in His image. We have the kind of creative imagination that only God has. As I've explained, my friend, my friend Robert Kuhn that I work with very closely and taught and uh, worked with as a friend for years, while he was sitting in my freshman Bible class in Ambassador College, he was getting his Ph.D. He was working on his dissertation for his Ph.D. in brain research at the Brain Research Institute at UCLA which was the best one on earth at that time. He later helped Mr. Armstrong write the series about the spirit in man and related articles he brought. He studied the human brain. And as he explained, you can have in the laboratories, which they do, you can have the brain of, let's say, a little bird, and it's a little tiny brain, and then you get a little bigger brain for a rabbit, a little bigger brain for a dog, and a little bigger brain for a horse, and a bigger brain compared to the size of the body, 
for the biggest would be the chimpanzee or the dolphin. And the scientists at that point, when Robert explained it, could not, they couldn't be sure which was a better brain, the chimpanzee or the dolphin, because the dolphin didn't have the hands like a chimpanzee had, so they weren't quite sure what the dolphin could do. But you know how dolphins have seen men or woman over, overboard on the, on the sea and fluttering, and the sharks are heading toward them, and the dolphin will literally come and push them away or push the, the, the sharks away. They have a sense of wonderful intelligence and sometimes very kind intelligence that they can use. But each one of these creatures has a certain uh, wiring, as he said, electrical wiring, using, using layman's terms. And the wiring and the size of the brain compared to the body can tell them an exact trajectory of what the human brain ought to be like. And so the, the we're all coming up from the brain of a, a little bird on up through a rabbit and a dog and a horse and chimpanzee and dolphin goes just like this, and the human brain ought to be up here. It ought to be about 5 to 8% better than a chimpanzee's brain. But instead of that, it jumps way up there. It's completely off the charts. And the scientists don't know why. They don't know why. There's something in the human brain. And Mr. Armstrong wrote that series on the spirit in man, that God has given us something to help us have understanding of spiritual things and creative imagination that animals, no animal has remotely and never will have. God has made us in His image. We have the understanding and can come to the understanding, at least if we're willing to, of right and wrong and good and evil and have the capacity to choose the right and resist the evil, you see. And we've got to do that with God's help. But man has made, been made in God's image to become God's full sons. And when you understand that's just magnificent. And frankly, some of the most stupid people, when you really understand what counts, are not stupid compared to me and you and their IQ, but their understanding is stupid. Some of the most stupid people on the face of the earth are the greatest scientists. Those greatest scientists, Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens and others who write these books about the God delusion and all this, who don't believe there is a God. He who says there no, is no God is a fool, God says. And that's true. Can you imagine to see all the things the human brain can do? There's no way to explain it. No way even the human eye should prove there has to be a creator and all the other things you can turn to, but especially the human brain. But they, they somehow, their mind skips the track when it comes to that. And frankly, I'll digress a moment here. I digress too once in a while. But uh, I thought on this and prayed and meditated about it for many years. Why is that? It's not complicated. But I've never heard anyone express it just like this. I'm quite sure the main reason is because of vanity. Vanity. They simply don't like to think of a God who can tell them what to do. They worship their own brain. They don't like the idea there's a great brain and they're just a little creature down here. That bothers them. And, of course, as this uh, early philosopher here, I've quoted him in some of my writings, uh, these two brothers. I can't think of name now. But anyway, they were saying that we wanted the freedom to have our own sexual behavior and we didn't want a God telling us what to do. So it was fashionable to get rid of God. A lot of them had that attitude too. But the whole concept was we don't want some big daddy, a big father figure telling us what to do. So they try to reason around that and come up with the idea there is no God and explain away the most obvious thing in the whole universe 
And that is, there was a creator of the universe in the first place where it wouldn't be here. But that's what has happened under the influence of Satan the devil. So God has made us in his image. And yet much of the world believes in some kind of God or other. You have Hinduism and Mohammedanism and Catholicism and all the rest of the religions and Protestantism. But all these pagan paradigms, a paradigm is a whole way of looking at something, these pagan paradigms have confused people as to why they were born. Because Satan has caused men like the early so-called Catholic fathers, you know, who said, well, sex is bad and, and uh, we're just supposed to live in convents and monasteries and say, holy, 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 and they walk around and bells are clanging and ringing. And the movie Sound of Music, it makes it sound nice because there's, uh, uh, what's her name, singing uh, Climb Every Mountain and makes it look all pretty. <laughs> but how, how happy were these nuns most of the time? And what about the thousands of little babies' bones you find under the nunneries, which they discovered all over Europe, because the nuns got pregnant and then priests and nuns did have a natural desire and they were crushing that or thought they were because that idea is a doctrine of demons as it says in First Timothy or is it Second Timothy God calls it a doctrine of demons forbidding to marry and that's what they've done they give a whole con false concept of a God who's against this and against that and a God who has a sort of be good according to their ideas, and then they shoot off to heaven with nothing to do. Where we have, and the Bible reveals, a God who is reproducing himself, who is putting us here on this earth to learn lessons, not because he's trying to make it difficult. He wants us to be capable of using the supreme power that he intends to give us in a few years. He wants us to be able to use that the right way. He's got to know where we stand before he lets us have eternal life in his kingdom and a glorified spirit body. That's obvious. He doesn't want to go around creating other Lucifers to fight him and to fight one another. So he tests us and tests us and tests us in the meantime. But these people don't understand. They cannot press toward the ultimate goal of human life because they do not understand that goal. They have no idea about it. They're confused. They're blinded by Satan. Brethren, thank God that we know. Thank God, as Mr. Stroud was saying, we know the Ten Commandments. We know the way of life. But thank God that we know that supreme, transcendent purpose of human existence in a way that no other people on earth do. Only those churches who have learned it from Herbert W. Armstrong understand it. No other churches really understand it so far as I'm aware. And he did not get it, by the way. Some outsiders and other religions have said, well, he learned this from the Mormons and their concept of God. No, he did not. I was right there when he did it, and I knew him, and he would tell me if he burped or had a problem with almost anything. We were very close in those days. He was close to all the older students and was very open. Mrs. Armstrong told me a number of times, she said, Rod, she said, Herbert can't be a hypocrite because whatever he thinks comes right out of his mouth. And that was true. You know, if he had constipation, he'd tell you about that or he had upset stomach or anything. It didn't make any difference if you were around him and one of his sons in the Lord or sometimes even the girls got a little embarrassed. He, he was a very open man and he, he had nothing to hide. And so he did not get that. I could see the way he first started at it had nothing to do with Mormonism. They think that you're from some 
Kolob is one of the names of their planets they've invented in their human imagination. If you read their writings, K-O-L-O-B, some planet out here, and you transmigrate through the earth, and then you have lots of kids because they're going to be in your kingdom, and you'll be the god over all these children and grandchildren. So under the old teaching, you have lots of wives, so you can have lots of kids. That was a good a good idea for those Mormon men, wasn't it? They wanted, they wanted to have their harem and all this kind of thing, very carnal. So that was their idea. Mr. Armstrong had no idea like that. He came right back to the beginning that God made us in his image to become like he is. So at any rate, it had nothing to do whatsoever with Mormonism. Don't let any outsiders ever confuse you with that. I was right there when he began to talk about it. I've talked to him about it personally dozens of times. I mean dozens, plural, and many of us have. So thank God we can understand this. Turn back, if you would, now to the New Testament. Let's turn back at this point, brethren, to Hebrews chapter 2. And many of you know where I'm going, but that's all right. We need to review these wonderful things that God has given us. Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 2, and let's begin at verse 5. Paul is writing about the world to come. He says, For he has not put the world to come, we call it tomorrow's world, <laughs> of which we speak, in subjection to angels. That was not God's purpose to put angels in charge. Never was God's purpose, frankly. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? And most of you know I've often read that at the beginning of the sermon out of uh, Psalm chapter 8. David wrote that. So he's quoting David. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? King David wrote. You made him a little lower than the angels or the, Hebrew, or the Greek can be translated as they put in the margin a little while lower. He's made a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You see, God's purpose is to make us into magnificent beings later on. We're going to be given a spirit body just like Jesus Christ. And when we read about Christ, you know, in Revelation chapter 1, how his face shines like the sun, his voice is like the sound of waters, roaring waters, and all that kind of thing, then I can picture the Northern California, the Big Sur country, with those waves crashing on the rocks, and it echoes up and down the coast for miles when they get a big heavy storm up there. And you can picture, of course, looking at the sun in full strength. Our face will look like that in a few years. God wants us to share His glory. And what a wonderful thing that is. So He's made us a little lower, but in His plan crowned us with glory and honor and set Him over the works of your hands. We're in charge of the lions and tigers and elephants and every creature on the earth. Once in a while we let them get loose or do bad, but overall we're in charge, obviously. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, that Paul continues, this is beyond what David wrote, he put in, uh, 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 he, he left nothing that is not put under him. And when you read that, the, some of the commentaries admit that the wording in here can imply the whole universe. The whole universe. 
So there's nothing in the whole universe that is not put under him. But we do not yet see all things. We do not yet see the whole universe put under man. Man said, remember when we, uh, I guess, Yuri Gagarin wasn't the first man in space or the Russians and other, our men got out there. We have conquered space. <laughs> I thought that was amusing even at the time. Let's say here is the world and then here is space and going above here about 10, 20,000 miles up. This is, you know, we have conquered space. So they got out about this far from the world comparatively and they said, we have conquered outer space. <laughs> that would be like someone climbing, uh, you know, Mount Whitney up here in Northern California, our highest mountain in the United States outside of Alaska. You could get up to the, the, the Whitney portals, the campground about 5,000 feet and then you could hike a couple hundred yards on up the trail and say, we have conquered Mount Whitney. Well, you haven't even started yet. You keep on going for hours and hours. You get very tired before you go to the end. I was able to conquer Mount Whitney, so to speak. I didn't conquer it. The young rangers or whoever they were had built a nice trail up there long before I was born, probably. <laughs> but a lot of us went up there. Of course, Mr. Wayne Powell has gone up there several times, I think. It's a very good hike, but it, it, you don't really conquer it. It's there. But we have not conquered space, and we're not going to conquer space until when? God will let us conquer outer space, so to speak. We will be able to get there at the speed of thought, not the speed of light. Because if you went from here to Alpha Centauri or Jupiter or Saturn or some of the far-out planets beyond Alpha Centauri, it would take you years and years and years and even light years to get there. And you would never be able to get there. You would have to have children and your space capsule and grandchildren and your little children and grandchildren if they could survive all that, which they wouldn't. Uh, you know, something would go wrong somewhere and keep on living for generations. Maybe they would get to there. But we won't have to go through all that. We will just say, be there because we will be members of the God family. Does God have to think about how many light years is it going to take me to come from heaven to earth? No, he just thinks that he's here. And frankly, that's the way it's going to be when we are made spirit beings. It's magnificent when we really think about it and understand it. I'm not making that up. Everything in the Bible indicates that, frankly. We're going to be like God. So we do not yet see all things put under him, no, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. Christ was made a little lower, a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Christ had to come and die to reconcile us to the Father. We see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom all things for whom are all things, Christ, God made all things by Christ and for Christ, and uh, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to what? Many sons, not a few, many sons to glory. And eventually there will be millions and probably billions of sons who will be brought to glory. And I do not want to put, and God does not put women down, and I think all of you ladies understand that we're talking in a generic sense. Frankly, we won't be male and female then. We won't be black and white. We won't be Mexican and Oriental at that time. We won't be tall or skinny. I'll gain some weight, and some of you big guys will lose some weight. We'll all be happy <laughs> and when we have a spirit body. We will be spirit beings in the family of God. And that is going to be a wonderful time. But 
it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory to members of the very family of God to make their author, Christ, the author of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. Christ had to go through trials and tests. You say, boy, I don't understand this. Why go through trials and tests? Well, did the first time you gave your spokesman club speech or the first time I gave a sermonette, did they try to throw me off the edge of a hill? No, but they did that to Christ. Remember the very first time he spoke there in the synagogue, they got mad at him, took him out to that big hill, and I've seen it. Not some great thing. Many all the tourists, that's the only hill they had. So right near Nazareth, the great big rock bluff, and they tried to throw him off of that and kill him. The very first time they got a chance, and they kept trying to kill him. They yelled at him and put him down, and at the end of his life, they persecuted him, tortured him, spit on him, said, come on, smart guy, if you're the son of God, testify who hit you, wham, and they blindfolded him, and all the other things they did to him, and finally scourged him, tore his hide right off his back like you'd peel an onion, and then crucified him in order to pay for our sins, our physical sins and our spiritual sins. He went through a lot, and he went through the testing of Satan at the very beginning of his ministry where Satan came after him for a period of 40 days and 40 nights while he was eating nothing. So he had to go through suffering for both he who is sanctified and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Yes, we're all going to be one family of God for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Uh, I will sing praise to you. So we are Christ's brethren. He doesn't call dogs and cats and monkeys brethren. He calls people who are made in God's image brethren. And we need to fully understand how wonderful that is. And we're made to be like that. We're made to have control, ultimately, as this passage clearly indicates, ultimately of what? Of the entire universe. You and I, brethren, may assist Christ, and we don't know the details of this, so I'm not trying to say this is Scripture, but as you see how God worked with Abraham and talked with Abraham and walked with Moses and sometimes would back down and change his mind if Moses cried out about this and that, and he would interact with his servants, even when they were still human servants. And they were helping him plan what he would do and how he would deal with different situations. How much more will he do that later on when we are full members of his family? And he will do it partly for our good to train us probably too. Not that he has to have our advice, but to teach us. We will probably get to discuss with him what's going to happen over here in my city. We're having this problem or we're having this personnel problem or water problem or, you know, Christ can work with us and have others in his kingdom, King David under Christ and others work with us. But sometimes I'm sure we'll get to work directly with Jesus Christ, assisting him and planning things all over this world, maybe planning future uh, galaxies for that matter, future worlds that God has in mind when we are members of the God family. So we've got to think about that. We've got to learn now to love God, to drink into this book, as it says back in John chapter 6, verse 57, to feed on Christ, to literally eat and drink Jesus Christ by feeding on this book where we think like Christ thinks. 
And then we will act like Christ acts. We will talk like Christ thinks increasingly as we feed on the Bible. And then once we're born of God, have a spirit body, we have been interacting with God. We've been walking with God all our lives, or much of our life at least as a Christian. Not all our Christian life. It may take us a while to achieve that point. But at some point we will make a breakthrough to where we really do walk with God. We walk with God most of the day, most of the time. And then what? Then we walk right on over into the next dimension when the resurrection comes. Because we've been walking with God all that time anyway. We've had His Spirit in us. We've had Christ living in us. And then we can be made spirit beings, full spirit beings, full sons of God in the very family of God. So as I said, we won't be male or female necessarily, but the male has tended to dominate, as you know, and most women understand and appreciate that. So he uses the term sons. Once or twice he says daughters, but I think when he's talking of the future, he nearly always says sons because that is the way it is. He made his own son as the Savior and so on. So anyway, he was bringing many sons to glory. Many sons. And we're going to have that kind of glory uh, within a few years, if we can really focus on that, brethren, and the tremendous opportunity we have that God has put before us to achieve our ultimate purpose, we need to think about that purpose. Meditate on these things, the Bible says every now and then. And I ask you to meditate on those things because there's nothing more important to think about, pray about, and meditate about than your ultimate goal. Turn back to Romans now, if you would. Romans, and we'll go now to chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 13. He said here, For if you live according to the flesh, is it all evil? No. It's just the normal, carnal way people live. It's a mixture of good and evil. But the evil tends to predominate over the good, so if you live according to the flesh, you're not, had, you're not some Hitler necessarily, but you're just going along with your carnal mind, and I want to do what I want to do and the way I want to do it, and you tend to water down God's ways and laws and so on, you will die. And obviously he's talking about the second death. We all die the first death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You have to put to death the deeds of the body, this human carnal uh, nature that makes you want to lust after women that you're not married to, that makes you want to get back at someone who comes at you and your fists double up and you want to fight or to kill or to, or to be mean and makes you selfish and vain in all these different ways. In all these different ways, you've got to put that to death with the help of God's Holy Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Not if you once had the Spirit at baptism, that was wonderful, but you've got to walk with God. You've got to walk in the Spirit. You've got to be led by the Spirit of God. Then you are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the Spirit of sonship and the New International Version and other versions have it. It can be translated. It's from a Greek word. Check it up if you want to in concordances and lexicons. It means to make a son. So it could be adoption, but it could equally be translated sonship. And we know from the whole rest of the Bible, God doesn't adopt us. 
God could adopt a mule. God could adopt a pig and say, you're my son. God does not do that. He reaches way down to a lesser creature and makes us sons because we are made in his image and we have the spirit in man, the receptor, to receive that spirit essence from God which gives us the very essence of God's character. So he actually begets us. He doesn't adopt us and kid himself that we're his sons. We come right out from God. We have his nature put within us through the Holy Spirit. Once we repent and are baptized, God begins to give us part of his love, his joy, his peace, his faith, his mind, the mind of God and the way of looking at things, and his spiritual perseverance and patience and power where we have the power to overcome ourselves, the power to overcome this world, and the power to overcome Satan the devil. He puts part of his very nature in us, and we're told to grow in grace and in knowledge. And as we grow in the knowledge and the grace, the characteristics of God's very nature, then we become like God in all those ways, because God's very nature is growing within us. Just like an unborn baby grows and grows inside the mother's womb to become like the mother or become like the father, depending upon the sex of the child, but reflects various parts of the nature and the characteristics of, of, of each of the, of the parents, usually in various ways. It has that nature right in it. And that's the way we are when we are born or begotten of God in this life. So he gives us the spirit of sonship by whom we cry out, Daddy is a personal thing in the in the Hebrew and in the Aramaic here. Daddy, Father, Abba, which is a very personal, like we say, Daddy, Father. As I've said, I all would remember how I was about to drown one time and my dad kept telling me to, Roddy, he said, you don't get out in the current now. We were at a river and, and I was a little silly boy like little boys kind of danced to the edge of the cliff, you know, and I was trying to dance over to the edge of the water and bang, that heavy current got my feet swept right out from under me and I started to be drugged down the river. They had some falls down below on rapids and my dad had been a swimming champion. In fact, he was a student swimming instructor in his college. And so, boy, he came after me just like Tarzan. I used to see the old Tarzan movie. He came, boy, he got me. And he was much stronger in his shoulders and arms than I ever have been remotely. And very strong shoulders and arms. He could chin chin himself three times with his right arm. Three times with the dead, from a dead hang. He didn't lurch up. He just straight try it sometime. And uh, very few men can do that. I never could do that. I used to do a lot of things, but I couldn't do that. He did it once with his left hand, but three times with his right arm. But uh, he, uh, Tarzan, grabbed me right out there. <laughs> and then, Daddy, and I remember yelling that, Daddy. And boy, he can. Anyway, God is our Father. And we cry out, Daddy, Father, when we get in trouble. And we better know that he's made us in his image to be his sons. His spirit bears witness with our spirit. We sense that we have extra help we didn't have before. Now, some of you may not have had that extra help. And then there are all kinds of, frankly, Pentecostal people hoop and holler who says, glory, glory, glory. And they got the spirit flowing down everywhere. And you know what I mean. And they all have stories to tell of how God spoke to me and God did this and that. And you have to figure that out on your own. But uh, most of those things are I'd call a bunch of baloney. You know, it has no real, uh, no realistic basis for it at all. It's a lot of emotion. 
as you look at their lives and look what they've done and look what happens to them because many of them turn aside and don't ever obey God or go right back into their alcoholism or fornication or whatever the human beings are doing. But His Spirit bears witness with our spirit by giving us part of His nature so we do begin to overcome ourselves and the world and Satan the devil. And if children were begotten in this life, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs, brethren, it doesn't say Christ is way up here and He's going to get all this glory and power we read of in Revelation and we're down here in the pig pen somewhere. No, it does not ever hint that in any way. It's as though we share that same type of glory. He will always be our Savior. He will always be our living high priest. He will always be the captain of our salvation. And God the Father will always be the head of the family. And we'd better prove to God and to Christ over a whole lifetime of growing and overcoming on our knees, plus everything else, that we understand that. Once we've shown them we really do want things their way, then they beget us with their very nature. So then we have the same general kind of power and glory that they have. Not quite to the same degree. We're not going to compete with them. That's what Satan did. But we'll have that same general type of glory and power. Joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. We're going to be glorified together with Christ. And we read what Christ has now. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, I know you go through trials and tests. Mrs. Murray won't mind me mentioning her, I trust. I've known her for about 35 or 40 years, and she's having problems with her health and with her eyes and, and so on, which I am too. And different ones of us have various aches and pains, you know, as we get older. And we think, boy, we have all these problems. But she's hung in there for decades now. And we'll continue to, I'm sure, and all you older people, as we get older, it focuses our mind on the kingdom of God. That's that's good, although we don't want to give up and quit. We still have a lot to give sometimes if we keep on giving. But the sufferings we go through, some of you have lost mates. My first wife died when she was only 40 years old. I couldn't understand that at the time. It really hit me like a ton of bricks. Why? Some of you have had children who have died. Why? My friend Jimmy Mallet had his neck broken. You know, he was only about 16 years old. Why? Sufferings. We go through this. All over the world people are suffering. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. And we have to really emphasize that word, brethren, when you think about what's ahead. It is magnificent. It is transcendent. It is absolutely stupendous. The glory that will be revealed from the top of the mountain, and we look up to it and see it up there. Is that what it says? Look at it. The glory that shall be revealed in us. Oh, it's not up there somewhere. It's in us. We have that glory. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And here it indicates here, a lot of Protestants don't understand that. They think they're already God's sons, and we are. We're begotten, but it's indicating what we understand. The full sonship comes at the resurrection. We're begotten today, and in the resurrection we are born of God. We're composed of spirit. So that's what's going to happen. 
for the creation was subjected to futility. What's happening all over Los Angeles? The trees and plants are dying, and up around where I used to go up to Mount to, uh, Mount or Lake Arrowhead and all those mountains out there, the San Bernardino Mountains, the trees are dying along there. They, they've had whole articles in the Los Angeles Times because the smog gets blown in from the ocean and it's killing those trees. And all over the world we see uh, rivers and, and lakes drying up. They're not there anymore. We see animals dying all over the Gulf Coast. You're seeing it right now. It's going to be worse than ever. This may be the beginning of some of the final catastrophes. I don't know, but I think it probably is. It's a huge thing. This Gulf thing, is this, this uh, oil leak is a huge thing. It, those people's lives will probably never, ever be the same until Christ comes back to this earth as King of Kings and really cleans it up, really cleans it up, which only He can do. So the creation is crying out. The birds are suffering. The animals are suffering. The trees are suffering. The fish in the sea, as you read, whole categories of fish are getting extinct because man pollutes the oceans and man pollutes the rivers and the lakes, everything. The creation is crying out. And it's, it's subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope of what? That man would finally come to recognize our ways don't work. We need the government of God. Only the government of God is going to solve all these problems. There isn't any other answer. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption under Satan's influence into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Liberty. God calls the Ten Commandments the law of liberty back in James 2. As Mr. Stroud pointed out, when people all keep the Ten Commandments, you'll have liberty. I could let my youngest granddaughter just wander all over anywhere and no man would ever bother her. And if any man did, old or young or whatever, would find her out in the woods, he'd say, well, honey, where, where are your parents or can I help you? And he would mean, how can I help you? And take her back to the campgrounds or wherever she came from. The whole world would have peace. No locks on the door, no armies, no police forces, no hospitals, nothing like we have today. Liberty. For we know that the whole creation groans. Man is suffering awful because we've gone the wrong way. Satan has got us by the throat and is bringing us down. The creation groans and labors with birth pangs even until now. So we have to go through those things because of our sins under the influence of Satan the devil. And brethren, the United States will never be the same again. I've told you that before and I mean it. I can see that. I can see that clearly. Our nation is changing fundamentally and is not ever going to be the same again. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have God's Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan. We cry out, Oh God, help us. We need to overcome. We need to grow. This world's getting worse. We're tired of it. Please send Jesus back again. So we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the sonship, as it should be translated, the redemption of our body when we are given a spirit body in the family of God. Skip down to verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. You know, the world often misquotes this. They'll just say, all things work together for good. Oh, really? No, they don't all work together for good in the short run, at least for most people. 
Can you make the Jews all happy? Saying, well, you know, the Holocaust all worked for good and here's a whole race almost stamped out by these German death camps. Was that good? That was horrible. But God allowed it to let people realize that without God and the people, they denied their Savior, of course, but many of the Protestants and Catholics do too. This do it in a different way. He allows these things to happen. He allows these things to happen to help men realize, apart from God, who knows what's going to happen. It's just horrible. But it will work together for good to those who are called when you understand the purpose of it and that we are called to become full sons of God. And frankly, when you understand God's plan and the great white throne judgment, you know, we read about the Titanic. And they had an interesting thing on the uh, a couple of weeks ago on the... Uh, Sunday night uh, uh, program. Uh, uh, anyway, it was very, very well done about how they discovered the Titanic, this captain and beautiful sights of it. And you saw the shoes. The only things left of all those people were the shoes. The animals, the fish had eaten their bodies and somehow their clothes had rotted. But little children's shoes and adult shoes all over as they got down there. 60 minutes had this section on. It was 60 minutes. Very touching. All these shoes down there. Why all these people went down? Well, because God is taking or leaving hands off, so to speak. Man says, get out of our lives. Leave us alone. God says, okay, I'll just do that. I'll leave you alone for 6,000 years. And you can try your own ideas. You can try your own governments. You can try your own system of education. You can have your own religion all under the sway of Satan the devil your monetary systems, everything else, it doesn't work. So we've almost come to the end of that time. And I should clarify for some of you, by the way, you who are newer and you who are older, I haven't said this very often, but many of our top chronologists, even in the church, Dr. Hay and Dr. Kuhn and Ernest Martin used to be pretty good at that sort of thing, and others I've read outside the Church of God who study chronology, they all admit because of the accession years of the kings of Israel, you know, they say so-and-so rules so long and then so-and-so. They try to add up these years. But because it goes on for 6,000 years, you can very easily be off 20 or 30 years. Very easily. And we're getting near the end of, of uh, 10 years now. About 10 years past the 2000 that Archbishop Usher had. But... Uh, you know, so we, and Usher was not a faithful minister of God anyway. He misfigured. So we could go another while before you're clear out of the spectrum of what would be the 6,000 years. No, the 6,000 years has not come and gone. It has not come and gone. We easily would have another 15 or 20 years if God puts us to the very end. And if we were off that far, we don't think we're off that far, but we don't know that. Anyway, we're going to have to pray that God intervenes and we'll see that all things in the end work for good to who? To those who are called by God and uh, according to his purpose for he and who love God, those who love God. If you love God first and then you're called, then he can cause these things to work for good. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants all of us to be like Christ. What is the image of Christ today? As I've said, he's sitting at God's right hand, surrounded by four living creatures, 24 elders, 
about 100 million angels, a sea of glass, glory and power and magnificence. That's Christ. Think about it. We're called to be like that someday. So we are given tremendous opportunity that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among what? One or two? No, among many brethren. Christ is to be the firstborn. And if he's the firstborn and he has that kind of glory, what does that indicate for us? Well, of course, it shows we will have similar glory. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Those he called, he justified in his plan. And to whom he justified, planning the whole salvation cycle, these he glorified in his plan. He knew they would go to the next step if they made it. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, and that's a wonderful thought. Nobody could be against us. Satan can't get us. It doesn't make any difference. What if they get me sometime and and uh, say, well, boy, Meredith, you got all strong. And this guy was saying from wherever it was, Mr. Ames read the letter. I got, I tell it like it is. Well, sometimes I do that and we might get kicked off a station or something, but we get too strong later on. And they say, we're, the, then the bad guys come in and get me. We're going to fix you, Meredith. We're going to put you in a, in a, a space vehicle here and, and, and we're going to send you into outer space. And it'll just keep going on and on forever, and you'll never get back, and you'll just be out there. Well, I'd really be in trouble then, wouldn't I? Well, of course, no. Outer space to them is right here. Is God able to grab me out here a few seconds away or something as God looks at it? Doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. And brethren, I'm not hoping that'll happen. I'm sure it won't happen. I'm just saying we have to understand God is real. These things are real, and God will take care of us. If we serve him, he is alive. And I've got to have that faith because I intend to keep right on preaching stronger and stronger and stronger the best I can while I'm still here. As I said, maybe they may grab me or Mr. Ames sometime and they will put us in this tremendous technologically surrounded high uh, security prison or out in Colorado. They've got all this special stuff all around it. And there's no way you can get out of there. <laughs> right? Well, you know what I mean. That's silly. You think man's contraptions are going to slow God's angels down? No, they just maybe knock a hole in the wall and you go flying over here. It doesn't make any difference to God. It doesn't make any difference at all. So we could get very discouraged if some of those things start happening to us. But we've got to understand that just like Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. And what were they doing in jail that night? And the, with the Philippian jailer came in. They were singing praises to God. Wow! <laughs> Thrown in jail and you were had chains on you and in the middle of the night and said, oh my, we're trapped and we're never going to get loose. We're all chained and moaning. They were singing praises to God. And then God sent his angel, broke the chains, let them out, and you know the rest of the story. Anyway, God is real and we've got to have that faith that he will cause all things to work for good. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I want to really help us I better get my watch off here. I should have done that at the beginning. I might go right on until 6 o'clock and uh, <laughs> you, you wouldn't get your dinner. Anyway, uh, I usually take it off before the end comes. Anyway, that, brethren, is why we have to be humbled. God has to humble us 
and He has to knock us down to bring us to full surrender. God wants you and me to come to genuine surrender, a full surrender to our Creator before He gives us that kind of glory and that kind of power. He is preparing us for awesome power and glory in His family. And yet He wants to interact with us now and forever because later on He's going to interact with us and He interacts with us right now and we need to think about that. Back in John 15, if you turn there to the 15th chapter of the book of John now, you see a little bit of hint of this ahead of time here before we're spirit. In John 15 and verse 12, Jesus said to His disciples, This is My commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Great love, and we should have that love and try to lay down our lives to help get this message to the world and to help one another in every way we can as well. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Friends. Friends of Christ, friends of God. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, Christ shared the whole plan. Back in that time, they had a very structured society, and the aristocrats did not tell the peasants and the bond slaves what they were going to do. They just said, dig a hole or and go cover it up again. And what are they? they didn't say we're digging a trench for this and that reason, John, and could you get the job done this way? They weren't always nice to the way we would be today. He said, you're being brought to the inside to understand the why. And when we read the Bible, brethren, we can understand the why God allows things and why God does things. We are, even in this life, God's friends... God's friends, Christ's friends, if we really obey Him and let Christ live within us. Remember back in Genesis 18, remember how two different times Abraham is called the friend of God. And go back in Genesis now, chapter 18 of the book of Genesis. And here you find Christ, the one who was the Lord of the Old Testament, actually Jesus Christ on the way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in verse 13, in Genesis 18:13, he said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, I am too old to bear a child. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And Sarah tried to deny it, but said, No, you did say that. Well, then the men rose and went toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth be blessed in him? For I have known him. God knew Abraham, and Abraham knew God in a more profound way, obviously, than most of us by far, maybe any of us, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord. There is a way of life, and Abraham's children were commanded to understand that way of life and his household, to do righteousness and justice that the Eternal may bring to Abraham what he's spoken. And then God said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is grievous, I'm going to go down and check up on them. Well, Abraham realized what was about to happen or might happen, and he stood before the Lord. He began to reason with God. He began to reason with God. And he said, uh, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place? You see, he began to say, well, would, would you do this, God? He knew who he was talking to. Far be it from you to do such a thing to destroy everybody. Notice the last phrase here, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You better believe he knew who he was talking to. This being standing here with them was the Logos. He was the Lord of the Old Testament, the rock of Israel. And Abraham knew who he was talking to, but he was talking to God. And he reasoned with him, well, what about if there are only 40 righteous people and only 30 and 10? And, and finally God said, if there are only 10 or whatever it was, I won't destroy the city for the sake of 10. But he finally had to destroy the city. There weren't even that many righteous people there, of course, we know. But Abraham, and a number of times you can see him talking with God, helping God see what was in his mind, and helping God plan to think, so to speak. And sometimes God changed his mind about things because of these men. You turn over to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. As Moses and Aaron came out from Pharaoh in verse 20, Exodus 5 verse 20, why uh, they came out and then the, the uh, men stood there before them and they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge you. That is the Israelites who'd been persecuted here and cracked down on by Pharaoh because you made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh to put a sword in their hand to kill us. The men of Israel had been following Moses and Aaron and trying to begin to do certain things. But then Pharaoh said, don't even give them straw to make their bricks. Make it harder. And they were suffering. And these men were upset at Moses and Aaron. So Moses went back to God and reasoned with God. He said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? You know, sometimes I could say, well, God, why have you called me in? I want to get this message out so bad I can taste it, and you only give us the money to get on a few stations, and we need a lot more money. We'd go on this station, this station, this station, do this and that, all over the world if you'd send us a whole lot of money. Why don't you convert Bill Gates and Warren Buffett? God says, I'm not trying to call Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. You know what I mean? But, you know, you don't, I've never done God that way, but, because uh, I understand that. But, you know, Moses had a point here. It was really getting bad. People were getting hurt and beat up on. Why is it that you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. He was kind of fussing at God. God didn't get mad. Moses did it obviously in humility, but he was concerned. And so then the Lord said, now you'll see what I'll do. And then he began to describe over the next chapter or two what he was going to do and how he was going to start bringing these plagues on ancient Egypt and shake them to their foundations. But Moses and Abraham and many of the servants of God had to talk to God and reason with God. And we've got to learn to have God be real to us as we pray to God, as we talk to God, as we think in a few years we're going to help God plan this and do that in the coming government of God. God's got to be real to us. Because we're going to interact. We, you, and me, and all of us, if we make it, we're going to learn to interact with God and Christ and eventually with the spirits of just men made perfect throughout all eternity. We can talk with Abraham. We can talk occasionally with Moses or King David or Paul and fellowship with them and know them, these great, wonderful personalities. And we can reason and talk to Sarah and we can talk to Ruth, who was the ancestor of Jesus Christ, and to the other great women of the Bible as well. 
and see why and how they went through these terrible trials that came upon them. You see, we'll know God and these people will be born of God and we will be born of God and we'll be in that great spirit family helping God bring total peace to every city, every village to bring the, the, the weather right and the whole ecology will be changed, maybe to plant other civilizations on other planets, even in other galaxies later on, because God says of the increase of His kingdom, there is no end. We'll be part of that family. So we need to have that wonderful realization of what's ahead and look forward to it with all of our hearts. Turn now, if you would, to John chapter 17, which is one of my favorite verses, as many of you know, in the whole Bible. It's uh, favorite chapters, I should say. John 17 in your New Testament. Here, Christ has the real Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> the Lord's Prayer, as Mr. Armstrong explained, is just a sample prayer. After this manner, pray you. But the only full prayer of Jesus in the New Testament is right here. And even this might not be every word Jesus said, but this is the essence of it, at least it was written down. Jesus spoke these words here near the end of his life, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the first thing he started out, Father, God is our Father. Daddy, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And brethren, think about that. This is eternal life. That relationship that you and I establish with God now, in this life, where God becomes real to us, and we walk with God we talk with God. We pray to God all through the day. God is real to us. We see how He delivers us. We see how He helps us. We see how His plan works, as how His laws are righteous, and all the rest of it. And so we walk with God. We commune with God. We interact with God and with Christ, even now increasingly as we go through this life, preparing ourselves to do that on an even greater scale later. This is eternal life. You build this relationship, it will, then you carry it right on over into the spirit world in a few years. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. So let's do our best to finish the work that Christ has given us to do with all of our hearts. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. What kind of glory is that? Wow. <laughs> glorify me with yourself. Notice with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I read that a few minutes ago. Who was it that said, Let there be light, and there was light? That was the one speaking right here. He was the Logos, the spokesman. I wish I had Mario's voice now to say that. <laughs> In my speech class, I used to say, Get your voice down like John Wayne. And... Uh, and so the fellows would try to get their voice down out of their high chest and nose and so on. And, and then when Mario came to my class, I said, well, I had to change. I kid about it, but get your voice down like Mario. <laughs> I had a talk with Mario the other day. By the way, he's over in Europe now. He's all alone. So pray for him. He's just starting a long trip over there. And Dr. O'Neill and, and Mr. Uh, Charles O'Gwen are over there too, as you probably heard. I didn't catch all the announcements, but be praying for all these people who are traveling. Anyway... 
Christ had a much more powerful voice, or God does now, of course, a spirit body with a voice like rolling thunder. So he says, glorify me with that same glory, that same glory which I had when I was a member of the God level of existence, the God family, and said, let there be light. Give me back that total glory, Father. And then he prayed for those who were there. And then he said in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's what's always wonderful to me, because that's us. We believe on Christ through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And notice verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, what is that glory? The glory to speak like rolling thunder, the voice to have your face shine like the sun, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Not some lesser oneness, total oneness. Being full members of the family of God. That is why you are drawing breath. And that's why God has called most of you who are in this room. He's opened your minds. He wants you to have that opportunity. He wants you to achieve that goal. That's why we all need to be down on our knees every morning, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, as God says in the Bible, crying out to God like Jesus did, who cried out with vehement cries and tears. Read about it back in Hebrews chapter 5. Christ cried out with vehement cries and tears. Father, help me. I'm the only one who can qualify to be the Savior of the world. Please help me. Beg God you need help like that. Cry out to God. Don't go all out. Meditate on this word. Study it. Drink in of it. Feed on it. Meditate on it. It's the mind of God in print. And then ask God for the help through His Spirit to help you live it, to become like God in everything you think and say and do. And in that way, be fit. You don't earn it. You don't earn it. It's the way you ought to live anyway. But to be fit, at least, for God to give you that next level, that great power to help you to be in that next dimension, dimension, I mean, of human existence, of existence. It won't be human existence. <laughs> okay. Members, full members of the family of God, full sons of God, because you have overcome, because you have sought first, seek first the kingdom of God above everything else. Go all out. Don't hold back. I hope all of us can do that, brethren. We really do have a magnificent opportunity that's why we're here, and that's why we're called now to be part of the family of God because God is producing, is developing a wonderful spirit family to be filled with and led by and composed of the Holy Spirit. So let's do our part to be there and pray to God for one another and do all we can to prepare for that coming kingdom.